This episode is brought to you by DRB Facility Services. DRB provides a full range of facility services for both corporate and government clients. To learn more, please visit drbfacilityservices.com. That's drbfacilityservices.com. Hi, I'm Juliette Mayers. Welcome to Entering the Inspiration Zone with Juliette Mayers, a podcast for business professionals and entrepreneurs seeking positive connection and professional development. As an accomplished author, speaker, DEI strategist, and member of Forbes Coaches Council, I am living the dream, and I love helping others achieve their dreams. Each episode, I will share with you actionable steps that you can take to build the work and life you've imagined. Welcome. So excited to have with me this morning, Jeff Furrer. Jeff is a non-resident fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution and a foundation fellow for Eastern Bank Foundation. He is the author of the recently published The Myth That Made Us by MIT Press. Just came out hot off the press, and I'm excited to say that I had an opportunity to hear Jeff live talk about this. The book explores links between widely held but false narratives about poverty and race and poor outcomes for many in the U.S. economy. In addition, he's working with a large collaborative to update the findings of the Federal Reserve's 2015 Color of Wealth in Boston study. This group hopes to use the new findings to design programs and policies to close the wealth gap in the greater Boston metro area and surrounding communities. And I have been an admirer of Jeff's and I'm delighted that he's taken time out to talk with us here on Entering the Inspiration Zone. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks very much. It's great to be here, Juliet. Thank you. Great to have you. And so today we're calling this episode Dispelling the Myth and Closing the Wealth Gap, which is right in line with Jeff's book. And as we do with all of our guests, Jeff, can you start off by telling us about yourself, a little bit about your background so our guests can have an opportunity to know who you are? Sure. Happy to do that. I spent many years working for the Federal Reserve System, the nation's central bank, as an economist. I did a bunch of research in macroeconomics and how to do monetary policy, how to set interest rates and all of that, which was fascinating and I hope important work. But in the last 15 years of my career there, I became more and more involved in economic development activities, which the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston promotes and puts out. Importantly, the Working Cities Program, where we went into the gateway cities in Massachusetts, as well as other post-industrial cities around New England. The Color of Wealth project that you just mentioned was transformative for me, I think, partly from seeing the results that came out of the survey. But even more importantly, being involved with a working group that formed after the publication of the study to help us all understand what were the sources of the wealth gaps that that study uncovered. And to me, that was just eye-opening. And I knew some of that before, but I did not know all of it. This is 10, 11 years ago now, but it sort of changed my life. And between that, and I have to say some of the relationships that I formed with folks who are working in cities that often have families that are struggling 
those relationships changed the way I think about economics, the way I think about the economy. And it also changed what I thought I should be doing with my professional career, which is what I've been doing for the last three years is focusing on exactly those issues. Yeah, I have to say, I remember when that study came out. And for those who may not be familiar, I would encourage you to Google it. It was definitely groundbreaking. And I believe, Jeff, if I recall correctly, you can certainly correct me <laughs> if it's not the case. That's the study that essentially showed that the net worth for Black people was $8 compared to $247,000 for... Bingo. You got the numbers exactly. That's the median net worth for a family yeah. headed by a, a Black person as opposed to a white person. And yeah, it was staggering. Now, we knew that there were wealth gaps already from other data, but we had not been able to measure it for Boston very well. And we so we just didn't know how that was going to turn out. I have to say, when we say $8, we don't know if it's 8 or $5,000 or negative $5,000 because net worth is how many assets you have minus how many debts. It could be your debts are bigger than your assets. So it's possible that what we uncovered is that the average is, is a negative net worth for families headed by a Black individual. Um, but in any event, it doesn't matter. The point is that the gaps were staggering. Yeah. So Wow. And so, Jeff, are you from the area? What made you so passionate about exploring this work in this place? I mean, I guess, to be honest, I would have explored it any place I was okay. looking at once I came to understand. I actually grew up outside of New York City. Those are my roots. And I spent a number of years living in D.C., but I've been in the Boston area for the last 31 years. And so partly because the Boston Fed's focus includes the New England, six New England states, it was natural to start thinking about measuring wealth gaps in that domain, and then also pursuing additional work that focused on populations that live within New England. And there are plenty of low-income communities, many, of course, disproportionately communities of colors, immigrants, plenty of those in the New England area. There's no mm -hmm. shortage of struggle going on in our own backyards. Right. One of the things I observed, Jeff, is that you are very passionate about this. So where does that spark come from? Why is this so important to you? It's partly from the economics of it. That is observing that our system, which I keep emphasizing is something we constructed, it didn't just happen, but it delivers poor outcomes to so, so many people in the US, not because, you know, of course, not because they're not working hard, but because that's the way the system is structured. So partly from the economic perspective, I just was struck by this over and over again and said, this is one of the existential questions for our country. How do we confront these realities, which are, of course, steeped in our racial and ethnic history, but also are harming white families. They don't always realize it, but it's harming them as well. So it was first from the economic perspective, but just as importantly, it's kind of a moral book. I actually talked to some friends of mine who read early drafts and said, this is a moral book, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And it, it is. It's observing that. And yes, it's economically distressing, but it's also morally distressing for people who belong to faith communities or people who have any, wherever their set of morals come from, yeah. you have to look at and say that there's something just fundamentally wrong about this. This is not the way it should be, and we can do better. So it's both of those perspectives that fuel my passion about working on these things. Yeah. And so I want to talk about the book because I have to tell you, uh, having had the opportunity to attend the event last night was just really compelling. And certainly I encourage everyone who's listening to buy the book. The second part of the title is equally as important. I only said the first part, so I'm going to say the full thing here. So the book is The Myth That Made Us, How False Beliefs About Racism and Meritocracy Broke Our Economy and How to Fix It. So Jeff, tell us about 
the book. Sure. That's a long title. I know that. But, uh, <laughs> wait. I wanted to make sure people reading the book would not have to infer too much from just the main title, the myth that made us. Right. What might that mean? And in, importantly, I wanted to put a couple of the really key narratives right in that subtitle. So the notion that we're a post-racist economy and the notion that the economy operates as if it's a meritocracy, meaning, you know, you work hard and you will get exactly what you deserve from your hard work. Those are both completely false. And one of the main points I want to make in the book is that those two narratives, meritocracy, post-racism, along with some fables about the way businesses are supposed to operate and about the way the government's supposed to operate, have driven key decisions in our economy for many, many decades, for centuries, really. They kind of lie at the heart of the way we think about our economy. Free markets, we say that all the time. That's a, that's a misleading statement. Markets are not free. They're constructed. They're supported by the government in a variety of ways. And of course, there's some folks who don't want to see the current structure to change because for those folks for whom it's working really well, so that's mostly large corporations and rich individuals, they don't want to see the kind of government support that they get implicitly or explicitly to change. And so they'll say, wait, free markets, the government shouldn't intervene. What they really mean is don't change the way the government's supporting things now. Mm -hmm. Don't change the way the structure works now. So those structures have been used in the book documents, the history, both economic and to some extent social and political that shows how they're used to drive decisions, to deny opportunity to some parts of our population. And clearly that's that's true for people of color, going back to the founding of the Republic through slavery and afterwards. It's also true for some poor white families who are not succeeding because they don't have the access to education. They don't have the initial family resources of wealth and income that give them the opportunity to succeed. And the workplace has been structured by the private sector following a slavish devotion to the myth that profit is the only thing that matters at the expense of everything, including often your own workers, right? The profits have to go up, even if that means wages are not going up, even if it means that we're skinning back the benefits that we offer. And even if it means that when, as I've said, when I speak about this, when my workers go home at night, they don't really have enough to live on. Yeah. So those are powerful narratives. They've had incredibly sweeping effects on our economy. And, and of course, the thing that concerns me most is that because of the lack of opportunity provided so unequally, mm -hmm. so many, many families are left behind struggling through really their entire lives. Yeah. It's fascinating. You know, one thing that I think about, and you spoke to this in your talk previously at the book talk, is the fact that a lot of these policies and practices that are part of the system have been around for a long time and have been just accepted. Can you share one of the ones that you think, because I know there's so many, but an example of a policy or practice that exacerbating these myths that we talk about? So one of the most profound set of government policies that affected the wealth distribution so dramatically happened decades ago, but still has its effects today. And that is the way in which the New Deal from the 1930s under President Roosevelt, FDR, the way the New Deal was implemented. Now, what's interesting to me about this policy is that I would say, in some regards, it was a success in building wealth for a subset of the population through providing these opportunities. And of course, what I have in mind is that it built wealth for not all, but many white families. And because the accumulation of wealth rests on intergenerational processes, right? You're 
grandparents, great grandparents, their initial accumulation of wealth then builds into the next generation and the next. So that today the folks who have wealth can most often trace that back to multiple generations of opportunity to build wealth. So for that reason, the effects of that program in the 1930s, so you know, we're 80, 90 years down the road here, are still show up in the wealth distribution today. Now, of course, the flip side of that is when they provided those opportunities for wealth building almost exclusively to white families, they denied the same opportunities to black families. And tying it to today, the post-racist narrative today says, okay, some of you people out there are advocating for measures that would close that wealth gap. And in some cases, that means using government money or public money to close the wealth gap. And the question that many people ask about that is why would you use government money today to give wealth to families of color when we're a post-racist nation? We should be looking past that. Or they might ask, when did we ever do that? And then I have a quick response, which is the one I just gave you. Well, we did it big time in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. And that is part of what built success for a lot of white families. So it's not unprecedented. In fact, it's what we do. And in fact, I'm in favor of the idea of building wealth for all families. But at present, we've denied that opportunity to the subset of families, largely people of color. But even many white families who have very little or no wealth uh, have suffered from the same sets of structural impediments in our economy Mm -hmm. that don't give them the opportunity to pursue the education, the entrepreneurship, and so on that let them build wealth. Yeah, very powerful stuff. As you were talking, I was thinking of the picture that's on the cover of your book, which it looks like a boot, right? Is that speaking to that concept of people should be able to pull themselves up by their own? That's exactly what it is, yeah. It took us a little while to go back and forth between the publisher and I to settle on the cover that I thought would work reasonably well. That's another story for another day. But yes, it's supposed to show a a boot that is somewhat lifted up and the strap on the boot is a bootstrap, but it's also broken. It's usually a loop that you can put your finger in. So it's a broken bootstrap, which is just a stylized way of saying pulling yourself up by bootstraps Mm -hmm. does not work. But it is a myth that is definitely out there. And that's another way of saying the meritocracy thing. Well, work hard. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Individual achievement is what we're all about. Right. This is fascinating. And, you know, it's funny because when we think about the seriousness and the enormity of these myths and the harm that they have caused, one can get a little depressed. So tell us about (laughs) the fix it part. (laughs) What, What can be done to fix it? I believe the way you framed it is how to fix it right? In terms of this broken system. Yep. Yeah, no, you're right. I think if you stopped roughly two thirds of the way through the book, you'd say this is a (laughs) bit of a downer. And that's okay, right? Because I do want people to be really impacted by the facts, the history and the data that are in the book. I want that to create an impact. I want people to feel like, wow, all this is going on today, despite our being one of the most wealthy countries in the world, by most measures, the most wealthy country in the world. So what do we do to fix it? So We should probably break this into segments because there are a few different things. But the first one I would want to talk about is, so in my view, because those narratives have been so destructive, if we want to make progress, we have to start deconstructing those narratives, start pushing back against them, start building a more positive narrative that focuses less on individual achievement, less on maximizing profits, less, of course, on the fiction that we're post-racist, acknowledges our racial and ethnic history and the damage we've done there and moves forward. Now, it's not easy to change narratives. That's big work to be done. You know, I think, Juliet, actually things like this, having a podcast that gets out on all of the platforms that you are distributing to is part of the busting the narrative work. It's like more people listen to this, at least some of them, I think, will listen and say, you know, I do think that way, the way the narratives, the false narratives describe. And maybe Jeff and Juliet have a point here. 
maybe there is something here that I need to reconsider. And maybe I've been less than generous in thinking about why people don't succeed in the economy in the US today. I think that's job one is breaking down narratives. I would say, stepping a little bit out of my expertise here, that sometimes the best way for narratives to be broken is through relationship with folks who are not the same as us, whether that means different in economic class or status, if you will, or different in race or ethnicity or in sexual orientation, whatever it is. The more we can build genuine relationships with folks who are not the same as us, the more we understand humanity, but the more we understand why it is, how it is that people are struggling. And I think it forces us to drop the narratives that are so harmful and often disrespectful certainly inaccurate about folks who are not succeeding as well as say I have or you may have. Right. So that relationship thing is really important. Amen to that. And as <laughs> you know, given the work that I do relative to uh, diversity, yeah. equity, and inclusion and strategic networking, that is such an important aspect of it, really. Getting to know people, building real, authentic relationships. And so that's a very, very important part of the puzzle. So I'm not surprised and delighted to see that you are embracing that and lifting that up. So anything else that you think? Oh, so well, just I wanted to inject yeah. a note of hope and optimism <laughs> in that regard, just because I said it's hard and it is hard. Right. But just to recall, we have changed narratives in our country before. There are things both on the racial side and ethnic side. There are things with respect to sexual orientation about which we have changed narratives. Not that those are all done and wrapped up in a bow and looking pretty now, but we have changed. And I think especially the LGBTQ narrative has changed dramatically through relationships. Our children, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, we learned we're members of that community and we already cared about them. And that broke the narrative that we may have held before that pushed them aside as other as right. them instead of us. So that's just a note of optimism there. It can be done. And we do have opportunities, I think, to do that in the domains of social class, economic class, and of course, race and ethnicity. Yeah. And what can organizations do? Because when I listen to you, and of course, I know that you are definitely the expert in terms of the economics of this and the data and all of that. But there are a lot of people who are still, even in the face of the data, in the face of evidence upon evidence upon evidence, are still asking, where is the business case? Or outright denying that reality is what it is. And so is there anything that organizations, those who are in leadership roles can do to try to help to fix this narrative? I think it is true that people have a strong propensity to discard the now wealth of data that is amassed when it means they have to change their way of thinking about the world. That is a really hard thing for people to do. So I think you work with a lot of leaders around New England. And part of their responsibility, I think, is to recognize their blind spots, sometimes with the help of someone like you, recognize their blind spots, and then lead in terms of talking with their organizations, their employees about what it means to embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, For a long time, there was no inclusion or belonging in that phrase. What does that really look like? And again, I think my experience in the businesses I was in, they were public entities, but they're still a business. And the businesses I was in, my experience, again, goes back to a relationship. What is it that changed my way of thinking? One, it was working alongside of 
interestingly, sometimes playing music with mm -hmm. a bunch of folks who didn't come from the same background as me, but shared a love of music. I was a keyboard and piano player, and there were others who were vocalists and played guitar and, and bass, drums, and we'd play music together. And I'd form a genuine relationship through a common interest or love. And that was a gift to me to understand more about folks who didn't grow up with the same circumstances I did. So that's, you know, I'm not saying music is the way, but you know, it's not a bad way. Part of the but way. It is part of the way, but more generally, just these relationships that we form with people at work. I'll give two other examples quickly. One is mentoring relationships. So a lot of people think that the person in the upper part of the organization is the one who's doing the mentoring. In my experience at least goes both ways and often goes more from the mentee, if you will, to the mentor. My gift in mentoring was to mentor a bunch of folks who came from really different backgrounds to me. And as I've said many times, I just listened. And that was an education. That was a relationship builder. I keep in touch with most all of these people still today. It is another way. One, it is important to mentor folks within and coach and advocate for folks within the organization for their good, of course, where you can help, please do. Mm -hmm. But it's such a gift to the mentor as well. And I think modeling that among leaders is really, really important. Yeah. The second example I wanted to give is just that we put together at the Fed in Boston, some informal discussion groups that were across all departments and levels of the organization. And there was no agenda other than to bring in a topic that was related to DEI, that's often related to racial and ethnic issues in our country and what was going on and how do we think about that together and what preconceptions did we bring or biases or what do we think should be done and what do other people think? And the key aspect to those groups was building trust among folks across the organization, trust that this was a safe place to bring ideas, recognizing that nobody has all the right answers and that it's okay to get something. And I'm for the listeners putting quotes around the word wrong here, yeah. get something wrong because we all do. And that was another really, really powerful experience for me. At the time I was a really senior person in the Fed and they were nice enough really to let me join. In the end, I think they did trust me. I wasn't you know, reporting on bad things to other people. I was there to learn and listen and contribute. Yeah. And those sorts of trust building relationships, and this was a very diverse group, as I said, in all dimensions, diverse in every characteristic, that was a great way to build trust, to learn, yeah. to build relationships. And through that, you know, that sort of permeates throughout the organization because all those people in turn have additional contacts. Right. And so these are ways that I think leaders in organizations can model in addition to taking public stances. And here I'll point to people like Bob Rivers and Nancy Staker, yes. who at the head of Eastern Bank and the foundation, they're very public about the need to make progress on social justice, about making progress on closing the wealth gap, building mechanisms to improve racial and ethnic equity. They say that all the time. And not only do they say it, they've built a culture in those organizations that is completely consistent with that. And the people who come in the door either know it before coming, and that's why they arrive, or they learn very quickly that's what the culture is. If they're not on board, they probably want to go somewhere else. But right. that is a leadership-driven, but everybody-supported culture. And right. those are ways I think you can demonstrate the value of DEI. They live it, and it's reflected in the values and everything that Eastern does. and. Yep. So many organizations really can learn from that. One of the things I'll mention, because Bob Rivers was on the podcast as well, he was in the zone with me. And <laughs> I believe his podcast, his episode was 
understanding the lived experiences of others. And I think that's something, one that demonstrates humility right. and something that everyone should be striving for based right. on what you're saying. And these are things, you know, what we were talking about are they're relational, they take time, they take effort, they take intentionality. And I'm also struck by the fact that there's also a huge policy piece, which you spoke to initially as well, and really requires effort on all of these different fronts. So looking ahead, given this is about inspiration, and I have to say I am inspired, particularly about the fix-it part, looking ahead, what do you envision as the future of these efforts to reduce the wealth inequality? So I think it's important not to be naive about the political environment in which we're living, right? It, everybody knows and understands it's fractured and fragmented and fractious. It was a triple F-R-A alliteration, <laughs> fragmented, fractious, fragmented. Anyway, it is difficult. So where I find hope is not by looking to politician A, B, or C at the moment, although I do hope at some point we will see some other inspirational leaders like some of those we've had in the recent past. I happen to be a fan of former President Obama. I do think he's an inspirational leader. I hope we see more like that. But I also have faith, and I hope it's not misplaced. I believe it's reasonable faith, um, the American people, the average, the ordinary everyday people who go to work. And my faith is about this, that ultimately, they are good folks who really are just trying to work hard and get ahead, not always succeeding, but they are trying to do that. And whenever there's a trauma, a hurt, a crisis in their communities, they rally together. They actually care for one another in their communities. Well, that's a good sign. That means they do care about one another. What's stopping them from caring about these issues? I think it's a bunch of rhetoric, political jargon, and in some cases, media channels that echo that jargon. That sort of political monologue about distrust, about fear, and about hatred of the other, instead of rallying around the community focus, it's us. We're all part of us. And as a nation, our best aspiration is to care for one another all around the country. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter what your political party is, let alone obviously gender, race, or ethnicity, or sexual orientation, and none of that matters. We care about all of those people. That's the aspiration of the country. I think for most people in the country, they still want to hold on to that. Their grip on that has been loosened mm -hmm. by this rhetoric that makes them fear lots of what's going on in a way that isn't quite reflective of reality, unfortunately. Yeah. So I have confidence essentially in the basic nature of folks who live in this country that with the right leadership, with the right messages, and importantly, with the right programs that actually do support them and provide equal opportunity, that we will move forward on a number of measures that I mentioned in the book that will build economic stability generally, and will build wealth specifically, and will restore equity of opportunity, equality of opportunity to the country. And because in the end, it's who we vote for that determines who the politicians are. It isn't easy, of course. And it's a, there's a large political machine and there's money involved. And I'm, of course, aware of all that. But I do think at the root of it, that basic human nature is there. And they aspire to those essentially founding principles of the nation. And if we can get leaders to go along with them on that and speak that kind of truth and move away from you know the hatred and the fear to something that's more about the community and the togetherness, the belonging, and the support and the equal opportunity, we do have a chance. And it is yeah. not easy, but we have a chance. Well said, well said. And so, Jeff, I'm going to ask you to share how people can reach you. I'm going to do sure. a very, very brief takeaways because you, I think, have clearly outlined 
what we need to do, what the problems are, and what we need to fix them. And certainly, as I mentioned, I encourage people to pick up your book, The Myth That Made Us, How False Beliefs About Racism and Meritocracy Broke Our Economy and How to Fix It. And so in a minute, ask you to do that. But my key takeaways, like I said, I'm not going to go through, even try to attempt <laughs> no, <laughs> to, to do what you did. So my big takeaways are that it's so important for us to individually and collectively get involved in making sure that we are acknowledging the history and the systems that are currently in existence, speaking truth to power is the way I would right. put it, and right. first acknowledging it, because you can't fix the problem if you don't even acknowledge it, and also to really look at the relational side of this. You've talked about a lot of the economic pieces, but the piece that resonated with me the most is the importance of us taking this to the granular level of relationships, getting to know each other, really breaking down those barriers, building trust, and addressing the fundamental issues that we as a society are faced with. And that includes exercising our right to vote for people yep. who are helping to advance the policies that we are looking to see change. So I know that doesn't begin to get at the volume and wonderful things you've shared with us today. However, I do want people to walk away inspired because I think this is definitely something that we can all work on, rally around and do something about and look to each other and in the mirror as to how we can help to fix it. So Jeff, go ahead and tell our listeners how they can reach you. Sure. And probably the best way to reach me is you can go to my website, which is Jeff Fuhrer, J-E-F-F-F-U-H-R-E-R.com. And there, there's an email you can send to me if you want to ask questions about things. I respond to my emails. You will hear from me. It also has some background on the book and where I'm speaking and where you can pick up on this podcast as well as some others I've been on and, and some other information from reviewers and so on about the book. So that's probably the best way to get in touch with me these days. Terrific. And this information will also be in the show notes for those of you who are on there. Go ahead and make sure you also subscribe to Entering the Inspiration Zone while you're there. And so, Jeff, I want to thank you again for really being an authentic leader and one who is really not just talking about the problems and the issues, but helping to shine light on how we can actually fix them. So thank you for joining us on Entering the Inspiration Zone. It's been my pleasure. Great to see you, Julia. Always. Thank you for joining us on Entering the Inspiration Zone. Until next time, we would love to hear from you. So if you'd like to join our mailing list, please send an email to info at inspirationzonellc.com. That's info at inspirationzonellc.com. And be sure to put podcast in the subject line. Thank you and have a fabulous day.